what he discovered was that there was some absolutely amazing music that had been lost and had the Nazi regime not taken place, some of these composers would have been among the biggest stars of the classical music world, the opera world in particular, in Europe. In the 1930s and 40s, the Nazi regime in Germany and elsewhere in Europe banned and destroyed what it deemed degenerate art, modern styles of literature, visual art, and music it considered un-German. This spring, UC Davis's Mondavi Center for the Performing Arts hosted a unique program aimed at reviving and restoring the music of composers whose careers and lives were disrupted or worse during those years. The two-day event, called Recovered Voices, featured two concerts of the nearly lost music. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Don Roth is executive director of the Mondavi Center and was instrumental in creating the event. Welcome to The Backdrop, Don. Oh, thanks a lot, Soterius. I'm glad to be here. So the Recovered Voices program was a collaboration between UC Davis and the Zeering Conlin Initiative for Recovered Voices at the Colburn School in Los Angeles. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you ended up bringing the program to the Mondavi Center? Yes, uh, glad to. I've known James Conlin, who's currently the music director of the Los Angeles Opera, has been there for 16 or 17 years, and he's he's had this passion project for almost 30 years of recovering the music of these composers who were suppressed by the Nazi regime. Some of it, as you mentioned, was stylistic. It was about art that they perceived as modern and degenerate. Some of it was art, in fact, was very accessible and what you might call conservative in its style but was written by Jewish composers or by composers who were politically against the regime or by composers who, who were gay. So there were, you know, as we know, the Nazis repressed uh, any number of different people for any number of different reasons. In any case, I've known Conlin uh, for over 20 years. So we worked together at the Aspen Music Festival, and uh, I, I try to get to Los Angeles and hear him conduct. He's an amazing conductor and as well as speaker. Uh, and for uh, when he first came to Los Angeles, he actually recovered a number of operas that had been written by these composers who were re- repressed by the Nazis. Uh, and then recently, as you mentioned, he found a new home for this project at the Colburn Conservatory of Music Institute, which is an absolutely uh, an educational treasure for music education on the West Coast. And he was able to land it there with the Searing Conlin Initiative for Recovered Voices. And he hopes this will become the basis for a long-term, structurally secure effort to bring back uh, this lost music. In, in any case, during COVID, but back after the opera had started giving performances again, I went down to see an opera. And afterwards, I met outside with James because it was still it was still times when we couldn't meet backstage. <laughs> and uh, and we, you know, we were through our masks. We, we discussed with enthusiasm uh, f- to find a way for him to bring this project to us, you know, and, and, and the advantage of a place like the Mandavi Center is we're on this amazing campus with all these faculty resources, with all the scholarship, the learning, the teaching, 
that goes on. And so we believe that if we were able to bring the, the music of the project, we could also surround that with some real contextualizing uh, information that our faculty members would have. So he said, well, I think I have a way because I'm working with these amazing Colburn students. And I think we could bring bring them up and do a couple of programs. And so from at that juncture, that was probably about 18 or 20 months ago, uh, I went back to uh, the Mandavi Center and, and talked to my colleagues, particularly Jeremy Ganter, the Associate Executive Director, who's also a Director of Programming. And we just started to roll our sleeves up and deal with the details. And the end product of that was just uh, very recently, we were able to have two concerts by what I would say these absolutely magnificent uh, musicians from Colburn and a wonderful symposium featuring Maestro Conlin as keynote speaker, but several of our great UC Davis faculty who brought new perspectives to the work he was doing. So when, when, did, when did James Conlin actually start the, the Recovered Voices initiative? Like, how did it come about? When did it start? How long has he been working on this? Well, he tells the story that back about 30 years ago, when he was the music director for the, for the city of Cologne in Germany, which meant he oversaw the opera, the symphony, all the musical activity. Subsequently, he moved and ran the Paris Opera for a decade before he came to L.A., uh, where Placido Domingo had brought him in to be their new uh, music director and conductor. So about 30 years ago, he tells the story, he was going out as conductors do, they're on what I call artist time. They're having dinner at 1030 at night or 11 o'clock <laughs> at night after an opera. He's, he's on his way to an Italian restaurant in Cologne, his favorite Italian restaurant. And there uh, on the radio, he heard this beautiful piece of music. And he, you know, he was a, he was a bit of a prodigy. He, he been conducting since he was in his teens. Uh, when he was at Juilliard, he was picked to conduct La Boheme by Maria Callas. You know, mm -hmm. he, he has you know, quite the background. And he hears this music and he says to himself, I've never heard this piece of music. I've been listening to classical music my whole life since I was a little kid. Uh, and then it turned out it was a piece, The Mermaid. It was kind of a tone poem by Alexander Zemlinsky. And he said, "Why? I just can't understand why I never heard this music. So he researched it, and it turned out that Simlinski, uh, who had been a big, big, uh, important composer starting around the turn of the 20th century in Germany and Austria, his music had been pretty much completely lost. And, and Conlin started to think, were there other composers like this? And so... He began uh, to research and define the music, Zemblinsky kind of being oh, kind of the grandfather of this group. He was the oldest uh, of the group of composers. And, and what he discovered was that there was some absolutely amazing music that had been lost and had the Nazi regime not taken place. Some of these composers, ones that we have excerpts from, uh, to listen to. You know, some of these composers would have been among the biggest stars of the classical music world, the opera world in particular, in Europe. And so that started 30 years ago. When he moved to Los Angeles, he found a receptive administration. He put on uh, about seven or eight operas 
one of which uh, by Zemblinsky is a one-act opera called The Dwarf, a very tragic story about a dwarf who basically lives in, in a Spanish royal palace and thinks he's beloved when, in fact, people are mocking him. And, he, and there are no mirrors that he's ever seen. So he doesn't mm -hmm. realize that he is deformed and uh, looks not handsome like everybody is telling him he is. And, and there's not a dry eye in the house when that's over. It's as beautiful uh, a setting of a tragic tale as anything Puccini or Verdi ever wrote. And, and so he was able, James, to land this at the opera. There's only a limited, you know, writing operas is a big deal. So there's only a limited number of operas that fit into that. So he was looking for uh, another home uh, in addition to the opera. And that's when he you know, went to Colburn because at Colburn you have educators who are musicologists, you have students who are ready to learn. And one of his goals at Colburn is here's a generation of musicians. The musicians that were played at the Madhavi Center were, were probably, you know, no, most of them were in their 20s. So what he's hoping is that, you know, this is a new generation for whom this will become standard repertoire as opposed to voices that you've never heard. Right. And and so just to be clear, so these are our 20th century composers who yes. lived from the late 1800s through yep. World War II and beyond, right? And beyond. I mean, some people assume with the recovered voices that we're only talking, we're talking about composers who were in the camps. And yes, there are a number of wonderful composers who were in in Theresienstadt, which was the concentration camp that the, the Nazis held up as a model. You know, they had an orchestra there and, and they, there was a famous incident where they brought in the International Red Cross to show them how happy all these, the inmates of this camp were. They, what they neglected to say was that all of them inevitably were gonna be shipped to death camps. Uh, none of these composers who were there survived, but Schulhoff is one of them and, and uh, Several of the composers there wrote some fabulous music. And so, yes, there, there are people who actually, under those circumstances, were still able to create beautiful things. But that is uh, a very small percentage. Uh, the, most of the composers he's dealing with had a relatively complete life. But the tragedy for them was that music was their life as it is for most composers and they you know they couldn't compose or in the case of somebody like Wolfgang Maria Korngold who many people have heard of you know he was in Hollywood making beautiful mu movie music he won an Oscar for Robin Hood you know he was a big star but he when he was 21 he had written an opera called Die Todesstadt, the, the Dead State or the Dead City, that was like the number one hit opera in all of the German speaking world. Hmm. 21 years old, a Mozart type of thing, that kind right. of level of genius. And I've heard the opera, uh, San Francisco Opera did it a number of years ago. Fabulous piece. I couldn't believe when I found out that he was 21 when he wrote it. <laughs> uh, and so his, you know, he was going to be the next Richard Strauss, the next Wagner, he was going to be that person. But when he went to Hollywood, you know, he went to Hollywood, he was asked to do some film scores. He did, 
and then he couldn't go home until after World War II. And ironically, he got when he went back to Germany and Austria, they said, well, you, you're a sellout. You, you just do movie music. You're not a serious composer. And, and you just you went over there instead of staying here. Well, of course, as a Jewish composer, staying there would have meant his most likely his death. But it, so, so even though he lived and prospered, and made a lot of money in Hollywood, it was a very tragic life in the sense that this was somebody who, when he was 12 years old, was told by Gustav Mahler that he was a, a genius. And he was, in fact, a genius. But and he did, you know, we, Captain Blood and all these great, you know, swashbuckling movies. But his life took a turn that it wasn't meant to take. All right. Incredible. Let's listen to a short clip of his music. Uh, what are we going to hear and why is it special? Yeah, well, this is uh, from uh, one of the reasons it's special is that he was uh, 19 years old when he wrote it. Uh, he was still in, in the German speaking world. He was in Vienna. Uh, they were producing uh, Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing and asked this young uh, Mozart-like genius to write some incidental music for it. And so he did. And I think we're listening to the to the overture. One of the things that I think is it's so important about, you know, if we think about recovered voices, it's it's a tragic set of stories. But the music is not all tragic. The music is, is, is scopes all these relationships. He wrote this in 1918. You know, he didn't know what lay ahead, but it's beautiful, playful music. And I think you'll hear that. Being an overture, I guess you, you hear a couple of different themes there. Exactly. And yeah, and it sounds, you know, it, it, it's uh, you definitely it feels like a romantic classical piece. Absolutely. So when when uh, Conlon came to the Mondavi Center, he brought six pieces by four different composers. Zemblinsky was one. Korngold was one. Arnold Schoenberg, the most famous of the folks, was was one. And then Franz Schreker. And uh, a lot of the music, you know, just is is upbeat. You know, after all, this is incidental music for one of Shakespeare's comedies, and uh, and so it goes through a, lo a lot of the moods of the play. But I would say that all of these uh, composers at that time, at the early part of the 20th century, before the Nazis came on the scene, were writing this kind of romantic or post-romantic music that was very influenced earlier by Brahms, by Mahler, you know, people who really wrote a lot of emotional impact. So that was Korngold we just heard. Another featured composer who you mentioned was Franz Schrecker. Um, what was his story? I think 
of this group of composers, I mean, obviously the people like Schulhoff who, who died in the, in the concentration camps had the most tragic stories, but of this group of composers, I'd say his story was the most tragic. He was an extremely popular composer in Germany. He was in Berlin. He had, he was running the Hochschule, the, the highest music school job and educational job you could get in Berlin. And he ended up dying in, in 1934, right after Hitler came to power. Uh, they had stripped him of his positions. They would not let his music be heard. And he, he died of a stroke, but it certainly is not beyond reason to think that that stroke was impacted. His health was certainly impacted by this this kind of stress that came out of the blue. He was in his mid-50s. He was in his prime as a composer, and suddenly his work went away. And his work, you know, because of Korngold's movie career, people remember him, and uh, Zemblinsky, not, not so much, but Schrecker, I'd never heard of him mm -hmm. before, you know, and, and I ran orchestras for 30 years. Mm -hmm. we, I, ne I never presented a piece of his music ever. And this uh, chamber symphony that was played, you know, I was saying to James Conlon that this is, this is the middle piece on any number of wonderful symphony programs. And it's frankly a better piece than many pieces that are in the, the standard repertoire. It's beautifully orchestrated. It has lots of energy and verve. And, you know, it, there's absolutely no reason why, uh, well, there's a reason, and the Nazis are the reason, but uh, no reason why this wouldn't be heard along by pieces by, say, uh, Hindemith or Charles Ives or any, uh, Copeland or any number of terrific 20th century composers whose works are played all the time. And this piece in particular, quite, uh, you know, quite brilliant. And he also wrote operas, one of which uh, Conlon uh, revived uh, back, uh, you know, about 10 or 12 years ago. But uh, I was just shocked at how did I, how have I missed such a terrific piece of music? Let's take a listen.
you mentioned that you know he he died in the early 30s as the Nazis were coming to power. So I can see how how his legacy could easily be lost uh, if, right. if most of his works were basically at conservatories in Germany or Austria. Maybe they hadn't gotten out to the rest of the world where they might be preserved. So it's kind of almost a miracle that his music is still here with us today. You're absolutely right. And, you know, he was such a, a popular composer. And, you know, I believe it was his family, uh, you know, he was he, he was so well known and his wife emigrated, escaped, essentially escaped to Argentina. And when she came back to Europe, she went to every bookstore and music store and not a single piece of his music uh, was on the stands. And, and so, yeah, fortunately, uh, the the plates, you know, the, the publishers retained the plates of uh, that you could print the music from. But yes, you know, with the case of people like Zemlinsky or or Bartok, who came obviously from Hungary, or or Korngold, because they emigrated to America, then they had a presence here. But you're exactly right that Schrecker's world was the Austro-German world, and they uh, squashed him. You mentioned Arnold Schoenberg uh, being on the program. I mean, he's considered one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. So were his early works actually at risk of being lost, or or is he kind of included as a recovered voice uh, because the Nazis labeled his work degenerate and banned it from being published? Yeah, there's actually two reasons. You're absolutely right. He doesn't fit in this in the sense that after he moved to the U.S., uh, Los Angeles, which of course, which is where Korngold was too, because he was working in Hollywood. You know, he was became very well known. He became well known to some people because they hated his new system of twelve tone music. But he was intimately connected to this group of composers whose serious classical music was lost. In particular, Zemlinsky was his only music teacher that he ever had. So Zemlinsky, who was this amazing composer, operas and large symphonic pieces, and very little of whose work is known, he was Schoenberg's teacher. Uh, And they were very close. The, The music they wrote influenced each other. And when Korngold was taken by his parents to meet Gustav Mahler, when Korngold was 12 years old, uh, Mahler said, this genius needs, there's only one person who can teach him, and that's Zemblinsky. <laughs> so Zemblinsky became his teacher. So Schoenberg, the early Schoenberg, fits very well into this, and frankly makes a beautiful musical program when paired with the music of these others. Were the Mondavi Center concerts the only ones happening of these works as part of uh, Recovered Voices? Yes, the, the two concerts that happened, the first one, which was a chamber orchestra with works by Korngold, Schoenberg, and Schrecker. We did Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony, which Schrecker used as a model for his chamber symphony. That performance was heard uh, two nights later in L.A., but this was the first time it was heard and the only place heard outside of Los Angeles. The second concert was unique to us. So this project was unique to the Mondavi Center. The two concerts, one of which did get repeated in Los Angeles subsequent to its performance here. And then, as I mentioned earlier, what's so important and what makes university presenters like the Mondavi Center 
I think have special value is that we were able to bring from our Jewish studies program at UC Davis, a couple of marvelous faculty members who sat down at the symposium on Tuesday afternoon, right before our second concert and spoke to the audience. First, Conlon spoke about his project, said, you know, recapped much of the reason why this was so important, uh, including the fact that it's just a lot of really good music. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he, then uh, we were joined by Professor Eric Sven-Rose from the Jewish Studies Program, was also a, a professor of German. And he spoke about literary documents, mostly poems that were hidden away in the various Polish ghettos and only found after the war. And he read some of the poetry, which was absolutely fantastic. And then uh, Emerita Professor Diane Wolf spoke about human beings who were hidden. She spoke about hidden children like, you know, we all know about Anne Frank. Uh, And there were many in, in a country like Holland that uh, was you know much more receptive to its Jewish population than some of the other European countries. You know there were many hidden children, and she's written a book about what their lives were like and and what happened when they were in many cases reunited with their birth parents. And and it, it's a very interesting and very tragic set of set of circumstances. So Conlon's coming to campus allowed us to build a further context for all the things that were lost, so many other things that were lost as a result of the Nazi regime. And it, it was very, very stimulating. That's that's the kind of thing that only can happen when you do these events on a campus like UC Davis. And, and, and you, know, you, you know, we always think of lots of the specialties of UC Davis uh, in the sciences, but there's so much amazing work also going on in the humanities and social sciences, and we really experienced that. Absolutely. How many composers are we talking about here that the recovered voices have been able to recover, and how many works? That's a good question. You know, I don't know the complete answer. I know that there are dozens of composers, and I think that I heard Conlon speak at one point about the fact that he thinks that there are works in six figures, you know, that that many works that wow. that came out of these composers. And, you know, with the exception of somebody like Schoenberg, uh, which is, he, you know, he's included really more for musical reasons. You know, we don't hear these. There were six pieces in the two days, and I had only heard one of them before. And again, I've been in the classical music business a long time. Right. And in addition to the to the concerts performed as part of this program, are, are these works being preserved in other ways? Are, are there like initiatives to have recordings made of them? Or, you know, are there any other ways that they're being preserved and maybe, you know, disseminated? Yes. You know, so certainly in some cases, you know, they're we're getting the music printed, you know, like say some of Schrecker's work existed only as printing plates. You know, it had not been because because the Nazis had destroyed all the published things. So, so in some cases, you're bringing the published music back. Uh, the uh, L.A. Opera, for example, did a DVD of uh, The Dwarf, the Zemblinsky Opera, disseminated that way. At Colburn, they are starting to make recordings of, of these works. And I think what's most important to Maestro Conlon is getting the word out so that these get played. 
you know, recordings are an important way of preserving that, but they have to be played first to really get some of this work in the repertoire. Like I was saying earlier, this Schrecker Chamber Symphony is just, you know, it's a, it's a 27, 28 minute piece of music. You know, having done a lot of orchestra programs over the years, that's the perfect middle piece. You know, you have an <laughs> overture, you've got a 30 minute piece that could be a concerto, but in this case could be an orchestral piece. That's kind of a showcase for the orchestra. And then your big symphony on the second half. These works need to be heard. The the uh, incidental music from Much Ado About Nothing, that could open with joyful music any symphony concert. So as he guest conducts, uh, you know, James always brings the music with him so that other orchestras he conducts are learning these pieces. So preserving it in recordings, getting the music printed, and just getting it to be played, having more people hear about it. Well, the program you put on at the Mandavi Center definitely helps to bring the music out and just gets it that much closer to the aim of of having it performed and having it heard and having it learned about. Like, I, I had no idea. I mean, when, you know, I had known about degenerate art right. that the Nazis had labeled degenerate art, but I always imagined it being visual art and maybe literature, but it never even occurred to me that they would go after composers and musicians. Yeah. I mean, you know, for cultural reasons. Exactly. I mean, yeah, because in the, like you say, the degenerate art, you know, they said, oh, this is horrible. We can't have this. This is similar to the way the Soviets reacted to some of Shostakovich's music before they kind of, you know, exiled him and got him to play what they thought was less degenerate music, you know, but yeah, th mm -hmm. in this case, I mean, this music, this it, parts of the Schoenberg chamber symphony sound just like Richard Strauss, who of course lived to 1949, uh, lived a successful life where his music was beloved. The music of Zemlinsky is no more degenerate than Richard Strauss, than Wagner. It's, <laughs> it's in the romantic, tonal tradition. You know, we know Schoenberg went in a different direction, uh, but these the music of these composers uh, is all beautiful, accessible music that there's, so you're, it's very, your point about degenerate art is very, I think, very relevant because in those cases, they were trying to make an artistic case. This is not music. This is not art that is positive or, or puts things ahead. Whereas they they couldn't make that case about these musicians that the only case they made was they're Jewish and we don't want to hear Jewish music. Right, right. So I mean, just the, this whole program is in such an important uh, event, and it was so wonderful that you brought it to the Mandavi Center. And this is this is the Mandavi Center's twentieth anniversary season, as well as your seventeenth and last <laughs> season as executive director. Yep, <laughs> yeah, you announced you'll be retiring later this year. You've had such an impact on the cultural scene here in Northern California. Looking back at all of your years and all of your accomplishments at the Mandavi Center, what would you say you're most proud of or, or that really stands out to you when you look back at everything that you've accomplished? Oh, that's so nice. First of all, Soterius, I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, I would say, you know, in, in a, at, the, at the high conceptual level, I mean, to me, what, what was important from the very beginning uh, and and I inherited a very good program. You know, I, 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 my first season was the fifth season and uh, Brian McCurdy, who opened the center, did a wonderful job, established many things. 
But what was important to me was breadth and quality. Everything, when Jeremy Ganner and I do, do the programs, we have to believe that everything we put on is excellent at what it is, you know, excellent in its own field. But, you know, I felt that we could broaden that. I, and one of the things I was most proud of in my second season, because the first season I, I just inherited, it was what it was. In the second season, we right. opened with Friday night, we had Kiri Takana with a great soprano, one of my favorite opera singers of all time, uh, did uh, during her farewell tour. And then the next night, we had Doc Watson, the absolutely great hmm. Appalachian guitarist, singer, musicologist in his own way. And to me, that was a, right. that's the Mondavi Center. <laughs> Talk about breadth, right? Yeah, exactly. When we can do that in one weekend, and we had, you know, 1,500 people to see Kiri Takano, where you had 1,100 people to see Doc Watson, some of them the same people, <laughs> certainly including me. <laughs> And uh, and he he was you know both both lovely people and so to be a place where you could have Los Tigres del Norte one, you know one week and the San Francisco Symphony the the next week you could have you know Merle Haggard and you could have Renee Fleming um, you know so I've been very very proud that we've brought great artists who are in a really broad range of things. You know, I, I mean, I love special projects like Recovered Voices when when you can bring something that's great artistically and also has a real meaning. And, and you know, we've brought so many amazing dance productions, including the recent Swan Lake that was part of our gala for the 20th anniversary season from, from Ballet Projectors. But for me, I think if I can reach many different audiences, some of which overlap, but they don't need to, with the art that's important to them at the highest level in such a beautiful space that I'm so, such a blessing for me to be able to work in. That's, that's what makes me feel really good and, and feel that I've accomplished. Uh, I, I've taken, evolved us in the direction that I wanted to see it go. I've had, I have a great team. You know, I've mentioned Jeremy's the director of programming, who's amazing. And I just have, I'm surrounded by uh, people who love working at the Mondavi Center and love our mission. Do you have any plans for your next chapter, like with all the free time you're going to have once you retire? <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've been warned that, that you should make sure the time is, in fact, free, <laughs> you know, that, you don't, that, you don't, that you don't fill it up. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to stay in Davis. I plan to be at the Madavi Center as an audience member many times. Uh, my wife teaches violin at the university and plays in the orchestras around here. So, you know, definitely travel, uh, in many cases, travel to see uh, see some of the artwork that, that I love to see. And, uh, you know, I hope to continue to have value. I'm on several uh nonprofit boards and and trying to bring helpful uh, things from the experience I have of of my career, which is longer than I want to believe, but it's I've been doing this a long time, and so I you know certainly want to give back that way, um, and yeah, we'll see. It it'll be it'll be interesting and and different, but it's time. I feel that I'm leaving the Mandavi Center in a very strong place. The program's wonderful. The audiences are wonderful. The Finances are fine, and uh, I think this is good time to uh, say farewell and become an audience member. 
Well, Don, this has been really great. Um, thank you so much for coming on to The Backdrop. And thanks for, for you know, being an incredible steward for this cultural beacon in Northern California and for everything you've done to elevate the cultural scene in and around Davis. Oh, thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate it. I very much have enjoyed being able to talk about uh, this very, very important project. Don Roth is executive director of the Mandavi Center for the Arts and helped create the Recovered Voices program presented there with James Conlin of the Colburn School in Los Angeles. We'll go out now with Schoenberg's Transfigured Night. If you like this podcast, check out another UC Davis podcast, Unfold. Season 4 explores the most cutting-edge technologies and treatments that help advance the health of both people and animals. Join public radio veterans and Unfold hosts Amy Quinton and Marianne Russ-Sharp as they unfold stories about the people and animals affected the most by this research. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.